Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, our text this morning is from Christ's famous sermon, often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And this name, of course, comes from the location of Jesus' preaching, namely on a mountain most likely near Galilee. However, this sermon could just as easily be called the Sermon about Life in God's Kingdom. Or perhaps, the sermon about how God's kingdom works. Or maybe, the sermon about how citizens of God's kingdom live. And that's because Christ focuses on these things in these chapters, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. And as we read his teaching through these chapters, we see that God's kingdom works in vastly different ways than how kingdoms of the world uh, work. Think only of the famous Beatitudes at the beginning of the sermon where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Well, that's certainly not how things work in every other kingdom on earth, but this is how it is for God's kingdom. The same thing goes for our text this morning the end of Matthew 5. Here the Lord Jesus teaches us how to respond to hatred, oppression, and even persecution. And he summarizes his teaching here by saying, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Well, that is a challenging command. You might wonder, well, how can we possibly live like this? Love your enemies. Well, it's true, we can't do this from ourselves. We can only follow these words in light of the good news of Jesus Christ our Lord. We must first know what God our King does and has done for us. And in in that light, we can follow Jesus' teaching. And we can only live this way if the Lord Jesus himself changes us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So I bring to you God's Word under the following theme. Our Lord Jesus teaches us to respond to our enemies in love. We're going to look at three things in connection with that theme. First of all, the radical response of kingdom citizens. Second of all, the example of God the King. And finally, the practical outworking of this command. So first of all, the radical response of kingdom citizens. Now, I don't know how many hockey fans there are out here this morning, probably quite a few, but right now the NHL playoffs are going on, and the games can be quite intense. That's especially the case if a series goes to seven games, the full seven games. Because there's so much riding on the outcome of the games, the pressure skyrockets for players, coaches, fans, and everyone involved. And in that situation... Tempers can easily flare up. When a player on the opposing team makes a dirty hit or a nasty slash on your team's star player, what's so often the reaction? It could be simply rage that someone would do that to your team's best player. Another reaction might be, somebody get that guy, make him pay and make him feel it. Another reaction might be, well, if that's what they do to our team's best player, 
then we're going to take out their team's best player twice as hard. And maybe you yourself have had those feelings as you watch hockey. And there's something in these situations that make us want to get back at the other person, make them feel just as much pain as we have felt. And that's our natural reaction to injustice. This is also what some of the most influential teachers in Israel were teaching, that we respond this way to those who hurt us. Now, it is true in the Old Testament law, God did declare an eye for an eye. But as we will see in a moment, there was a specific application for that statement. It was not meant to be a free license to exact revenge on someone who hurts you. And in that context, the Lord Jesus speaks the words of our text. He says in verse 38, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone, for example, slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So Christ shows us a number of things here. First of all, he shows us that he wasn't afraid to correct the errors of some of the most influential teachers in Israel. It didn't matter. What mattered at the end of the day was what Scripture taught, not falling in line with the religious leaders. We follow Scripture. And you see, by these things, Christ wasn't speaking against what the Old Testament uh, uh, commanded or wrote. Instead, he was correcting bad interpretations of the Old Testament. It is true that the Old Testament law itself declared an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But why did God make this requirement? Well, this stipulation was part of the Old Testament civil laws in Israel. Its purpose was twofold. First, this command would prevent cases of extreme revenge and an escalation of violence. You know, if someone harmed their neighbor by stealing an animal, the victim might be tempted to respond in rage by killing several animals from the criminal's flock. This is what you're going to do to me, this is what I'm going to do to you. And this would probably only cause further retaliation of even, even more extreme measures. An eye for an eye prevented that sort of escalation. Not only that, but the rule, an eye for an eye, was a rule of justice for Israel's leaders and judges to dispense true justice. And so this didn't mean that if someone harmed you, you could just harm them back in equal measure. There were proper channels to respond. Those in charge of justice would exact an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. And we also need to see something else. Christ's teaching here fits with many other passages of the Old Testament itself, including the law. As just one example, listen to Exodus 23, verse 4, where the Lord commands Israel, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him. Right? You don't just steal it or let it go. Bring it back to your enemy. And if you see the donkey of the one who hates you lying down under its burden, do not leave it there. 
be sure you help him with it. Right? It'd be easy to just say, oh, that's a person that hates me. It's his donkey. He's going to leave it there. Forget about him. God says, no, help him. This is what our Lord Jesus is teaching us. This is the radical, radical response we as kingdom citizens give to our enemies, those who hate us. We don't respond with hatred and revenge. We respond in acts of love. Now this, of course, again, it goes completely against our fallen nature. If someone hurts us or hates us, usually we think, I'm going to hurt them back, maybe twice as hard. But this is why the Lord Jesus further says what he does in our text. Because this is our natural reaction, he says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Right? That's, that's the natural response. To love only those who love you. And to hate those who hate you. But the Lord Jesus is saying, well, if that's what you do, how are you different than even the pagans? Shouldn't God's redeemed children be different? Shouldn't our lifestyle and our actions show that we belong to a different master and a different kingdom? He says we show love even to our enemies. Pray for those who persecute us. And what purpose does this have? What impact does it have on your enemy? One purpose is that it shows those who persecute and hate you that you have something they don't. It will send the message crystal clear that you are different than they are. There is something different about your heart as a follower of Jesus Christ. This is what First Peter is getting at as well. Right? Uh, be willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. It will make them stop and think these Christians are different people. I certainly wouldn't do that if that person just or did that to me. How can they live like that? And that's a great question. How can how can we live like this? Well, it's only by looking to our heavenly Father, by seeing his grace and following his perfect example. That brings us to the second point. So as we've just seen, this teaching from our Lord Jesus goes completely against our natural response. But to help us in this, Christ gives us the perfect example. He points us to our Father in heaven. And he also sets the bar to the highest standard when he says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So aim to live as, as God acts towards his enemies. Think for a moment of what God does. In verse 45, Jesus reminds us of this. He says, Your Father in heaven makes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, it's easy to read over these words, but let's dwell on them for a moment. See what God does. 
And what he does is actually astonishing. The Lord Jesus points us to the things in nature we often take for granted. The sun and the rain. I'm sure none of you were surprised that this morning the sun rose again. In fact, you expected it. But through these means, like the sun rising, God constantly shows His goodness to people on earth. Notice, first of all, how Christ describes the sun. He calls it His Son. That is God's Son. The sun doesn't have its existence on its own. God created it. He sustains it every moment. He made it just the right size, just the right distance from the earth, just the right color and brightness to make life flourish here on earth. He causes it to rise every morning. And what do we gain by this constant display of God's goodness? We receive innumerable blessings every day. Without the sun, there would be no life. The world would, would be just one dark chunky or chunk of icy rock and snow. No plants, no animals, nothing to see, nothing to enjoy. If God did not shine the sun, we would quickly perish. In fact, he did this very thing in the land of Egypt in the book of Exodus. In order to punish Pharaoh and the Egyptians for enslaving Israel, refusing to let them go, God sent plagues upon the land. One of the worst plagues was the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and says there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. Imagine that, three days, you can't see a thing. You can't even see your hand if, it, if you waved it in front of your face. Nothing. Just pitch blackness and nothing but blackness. Well, this was simply terrifying for the Egyptians. And that's what God could do to a world in rebellion against Him. With a simple act of His will, he could turn out the lights forever. And he would be justified in doing that. But what does he do? Continues to cause the sun to rise every day, showing his goodness to people in rebellion against him. Then there's the rain. The sun is great, but we need the rain too. There's an old proverb that goes like this, sunshine all the time makes a desert. And that's true. Without rain, everything would dry up and die, including us. No, we might be tempted to grumble when the rainy days come. We had some rain earlier this week. As I was out and about, I heard some people complaining about the rain. But we should never do that. Rain is an incredible gift from God. You don't want to live in a world where there's no rain. In fact, you can't. Besides that, after we received the rain early last week, a few days later we were back into the glorious sunshine, and it was amazing. You could almost hear the plants singing for joy. You could almost see them growing by the minute. Now everything's so nice and green and beautiful. 
felt so amazing to get outside and see God's beauty on display all around, you can't help but look up and say, thank you, Lord, for your goodness. So God is constantly showing his goodness to everyone on earth. But what do people do with God's gifts? So often fallen humans use them as an opportunity to sin against God, continue in rebellion against him. These things provoke God's wrath as he sees his creatures taking his gifts and using them in war against the one who sends them. Well, that's the equivalent of you giving your neighbor $100 every day, but then every day as you drive away from your home, that same neighbor throws rocks at your car. Well, if that happens, I'm pretty sure you would stop giving your neighbor $100. You know what? What does God do? He keeps sending his gifts upon a world in rebellion. Shows his goodness to both the good and the wicked alike. And this not only holds true for the sun and the rain. Think about what God did for his enemies through Jesus Christ. He sent his son to suffer and to die for sinners in rebellion against him. And you know what? That includes us. Listen to how the Holy Spirit speaks about this in Romans 5. While we were still weak, Christ died, not for good people, but for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Here you can see the picture of God's grace to us. Once His enemies, given the greatest gift of all. We have this righteous standing only through Jesus Christ. And we are growing in goodness only by the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Remember, we were God's enemies when he gave us his Son. And this was the greatest display of love to one's enemies as there ever has been or ever will be. And so we are unworthy recipients of God's goodness as well. And this is also why we can now follow Christ's commands, also here in our text, because of the grace God has shown to us. As those who have received so great a grace, we want to become like the God who has saved us. Notice the promise that the Lord Jesus attaches to this command. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That is, be what you are, already are in Jesus Christ. Be in your actions what you are by God's gracious adoption. Children of God, act like your heavenly Father. Become like Him in every respect. That brings us to our last point. 
So the Lord Jesus gives us some practical examples of this type of radical response in our text. He says, Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Well, again, these things are not easy. Slapping someone on the right cheek was an act of humiliation toward that person. Also, Roman soldiers, usually, usually despised by the Jews for their occupation of Israel, they could force a Jew to carry his load, maybe one mile. That could very well be the person the Lord Jesus has in mind when he says, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. So these things are not easy. But with these things, Christ teaches us to refuse getting sucked into the revenge cycle and the I'll-pay-you-back game. As God's children, dearly loved children, we don't take on the attitude and perspective and actions of the one who hates us or persecutes us. But we respond in this way in love. Over the years, I've come across some examples of this. I, one time I read one story of a Christian farmer in, farmer in Asia whose neighbor tried sabotaging him, hurting him. What did the Christian farmer do in response? Well, he woke up extra early to water his neighbor's crops before working on his own. An excellent example of what the Lord Jesus is teaching us here. I also know a Christian man who came home one day to discover a teenager had broken into his house and was stealing some of his possessions. Being quite large, the Christian man had no problem tackling and subduing the thief. At this point, the man could have pummeled this petty thief for all he was worth. However, the Christian man remembered Jesus' teaching, and so he asked him, Would you like me to make you a sandwich? Well, I'm sure this... Teenage thief was quite shocked at the show of love. So these are some practical examples we could think of. Now at this point, I must also emphasize that there are, at the same time, limitations to this. For example, this teaching in our text does not mean we accept or ignore abuse. That's simply not what Jesus is teaching here. So let me make this crystal clear. If any of you, young or old, male or female, are threatened or harmed by someone, please do not take Jesus' words here to mean that you should keep silent about it. In fact, true justice and love means you should speak up and put a stop to hurtful action. Another thing, love for our neighbor also means we still protect our neighbors from harm. Jesus teaches us as individuals to turn the other cheek. He doesn't teach us to ignore the harm or or potential harm done to someone else. In fact, we must protect our neighbor. Love for our neighbor demands that. 
Uh, This teaching from Christ also does not mean that we become pacifists in society, that we jump on the defund the police bandwagon who resist evil people or de-arm the military. God's word elsewhere says that the government bears the sword to bring God's justice against those who do evil. So the Lord Jesus is not undermining that teaching. And understand this. You can show love to your enemy also while seeking justice for wrongdoing. Let's go back to the example of the man who made the sandwich for that thief who broke into his house. When did he make him that sandwich? It was after he called up the police to report the matter. Was it wrong for him to do that? By no means. That's the proper way. The police are part of God's agents on earth to punish those who do evil, including stealing. And so in this way, love was shown to an enemy even while seeking justice. Remember, too, one reason why God teaches us this response is because he will bring true justice. Romans 12 puts it like this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that is exactly what Christ is teaching us here. Overcome evil with good. God will bring true justice in the end. And that's why we can also act the way Christ teaches us here in this text. God will right every wrong. And he will give us eternal life through Christ our Lord. So this allows us to leave things in the hands of the Lord. And act as God's free children. That means keeping the aim and focus of our Lord's words in this text. So we don't need to respond to hate, uh, with hatred towards those who hate us. That's because we have been loved so deeply by God. And are loved so richly by God. God has given us everything we need for for life and eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Someone might sue us and take away our cloak or our jacket. And even though that might hurt somewhat, we know it's still okay. We have eternal riches in Christ. Losing a piece of clothing is not that big a deal for us in the grand picture of eternal salvation. We have everything. That is how the gospel frees us to act like this in response to Jesus' command. We become more like Christ who loved us even while we were still his enemies. Amen.